Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me, let me pray for us. I'm excited about where God's taking us in the scriptures this morning, but I want to pray, and then we'll jump in. So let's pray together. Father, we are incredibly grateful for the opportunity to open your word. Father, we believe that your word is what it says it is, that it's living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces between both joint and marrow, that it does not return void. And so, Lord, would you have your way with us this morning through the power of your holy scriptures. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and fill this place, to fill us, to fill me as your vessel to communicate through, that, that you would fill our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, our minds to receive your word, that you'd open our ears to hear and our eyes to see, and that you would just simply bless our time together. What a privilege to worship you in this way. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a book a number of years ago called Vintage Jesus. The opening line of the book is this. No one is more loved and hated than Jesus Christ. No one is more loved and hated than Jesus Christ. They go on to say this. You'll see it on the screen. You can read along with me. It says this. At first glance, Jesus' resume is rather simple. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from home. He never held a political office, never wrote a book, never married, never had sex, never attended college, never visited a big city. He died both homeless and poor. Nonetheless, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. No army, nation, or person has changed human history to the degree that Jesus, the homeless man, has. After 2,000 years, he remains as hot as ever. You know, we ask ourselves the question, why, why is that? Why has he remained as hot as ever? We, we as Christians would know how to probably give an answer to that, because he's, he's Jesus, He's God. But another question is this. Not only is he so loved by some and so hated by others, but by so many he's clearly misunderstood. Let me give you a few examples. Some quotes from some prominent people throughout recent world history. Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the former leader of communist Russia. If you grew up in the 80s, you certainly know who he is. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind, is what Gorbachev said. Someone that we beloved, the, the author of our Declaration of Independence and founding father of our country, Thomas Jefferson said, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. Certainly not what the Bible tells us. Fidel Castro, the long Cuban communist dictator, says, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol, of that extraordinary figure, speaking of Jesus. And then lastly, I'll throw this one in there. You won't see it on the screen, but I just thought it was somewhat humorous. From the Lakota 
Native American tribe, they describe Jesus as the buffalo calf of God. And if God were a buffalo, I think that would make a lot of sense. What about the world religions, the various belief systems around the world? What do they say? How do they define Jesus? Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus was merely a man created by the Father, firstborn of all creation. Mormons teach that Jesus was not God, but only a man who became one of many gods. And they further go on to teach that he was a polygamist and a half-brother of Lucifer. Scientologists teach that brace yourself for this one, uh, that Jesus is an implant forced upon a thetan about a million years ago. So there's that. Um, Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but rather an enlightened man like Buddha. Islam teaches that Jesus was merely a man, prophet, and he is inferior to Muhammad. Hinduism teaches that Jesus was a wise man, maybe even an incarnation of God, much like Krishna, but certainly not the only God. The Hindu belief, Hindu belief system says that there are hundreds and hundreds of gods, Jesus perhaps being just one of those. And then lastly, Judaism, as many of us are familiar, rejects Jesus as the Messiah, says that he was just a great rabbi and prophet, but not the long-awaited Messiah. So why do I tell you all this? Here's the point. Here's what I want you to to begin to connect with, and that's this. As these quotes and as these uh, aspects of these religions tell us and show us, the nature of the human heart is to define and interact with Jesus in the ways that we want him to be, to fit our ideologies, to fit our lives, to fit our, our comfort, our ease, however we want to shape Jesus to be so that we're comfortable with him. That's the nature of our hearts. We want Jesus to be something rather than who he really is. I've entitled the, the, this sermon as Embracing the Authentic Jesus. What does it look like for us to embrace the authentic Jesus? Because here's the deal. It's not just the people out there. It's not just those people in those quotes or the religions that I quoted and, and, and told you about. It's not just people out there or people in that country or whatever. It's, it's even us, those who would say, I'm a Christian, if that's how you identify yourself. If you say, yes, I'm a Christ follower, here's what can happen. You can make a right declaration about Jesus and say, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. But then what can begin to happen over the course of our time in a relationship with Jesus is we begin to actually try to shape Jesus into our image and follow a Jesus that's not necessarily the Jesus of the Bible, but the Jesus of our making. To fit what we most want him to be like rather than who he really is. So we'll look at a passage of scripture together that I think leads us to help understand the authentic Jesus and hone us back in, reorient us to who he is. Turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, if not, it's printed for you in your, your insert in your bulletin, and it'll be on the screens as well. I'll, be, I'll begin reading in verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, in the Greek it says Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Three things I want us to observe this morning in the text. First one is this. The first thing that we see happening in this conversation is there's a right declaration, a correct declaration. Jesus asked the disciples as they were walking through this district of Caesarea Philippi, this village, says, who do, who do people say that I am? They give him some answers. Just like today, there's many opinions during Jesus' day. There are many opinions of who Jesus is. So they give him some of those answers. And then he turns to him and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the, the, the voice of the disciples, as he often was, and, and many times putting his foot in his mouth, and we'll see that here in a few minutes. But the alpha male of the disciples, he answers, and he's, he answers correctly. He makes a right declaration about Jesus. He says, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, bless you. Simon Barjona. For this is not given to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father. You understand, you get it. You understand who I am. You've made a right declaration. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a historical context, even more, uh, probably rightfully said, an archaeological context as to where this is taking place, where this conversation is taking place. So, back in April, I, I had the incredible privilege of, of going to Israel about, for about 12 days. And one of the places that we went to in, in our trip there was, was to Caesarea Philippi, the ancient remains of where this was. And it was a small village. It wasn't anything massive, but it was a Roman uh, pagan village. And uh, you can see where the remains of this place are today. Let me show you a picture of, that I took. This is, this is from my phone where I was standing, and I'm, I'm looking at this massive rock that overlooks where Caesarea Philippi would have been. If you could, if, if I were able to pan to, to the right, right here, that over here in this area to the right of the picture would have been where the remains of Caesarea Philippi are today, where they've unearthed some of the, some of the original village. Now, this rock is massive, and it's over. You can see the people up there in that hole. I'll talk about that in a second, but this is overlooking where the village would have been. It, it would be impossible not to see it if you're in Caesarea Philippi, if you're anywhere around Caesarea Philippi. The rock in the middle there, I mean the, uh, the hole in the rock in the middle there. This was a place of worship, but this was not, don't, don't hear worship in the way that you would go, oh, that's good. This was pagan worship, and this is where they worship the god of Pan. And this was a god that the way that they would worship him is they thought that this hole, which back then was different than it is now. In 1885, I believe it was, sometime in the 1880s, there was an earthquake that shook this area of Israel, and, the, and the, the hole, the cave fell in on itself. So now when you walk up there, I, sh I could have shown you a picture. It's just a kind of a flat surface that you could actually walk out into. But back in Jesus' day, this was a deep, deep cave that went straight down, and they thought it was the gates of hell. They called it the gates of Hades. And so these worshipers of Pan, what they would do is they would, uh, they would make human sacrifice to this god of Pan. And the way that they would sacrifice these people is that they would throw them into the abyss. 
And then they would wait and see. One thing I forgot to mention is that this is spring water. That beautiful water there is spring water coming out from underneath that huge rock. And so they would cast people into the abyss, the gates of hell. They would throw them into what they thought was hell, and then they would wait and see what color the water was coming out. If the water was bloody, eventually, then they thought that they had appeased their God and that they, had to, they, they, could, they didn't have to keep making sacrifices for a time. If the water stayed clear, then they knew that their God was still angry at them and they had to keep making sacrifice. Now, having that context... I want you to think about what Jesus says here. Jesus could have had this conversation anywhere along the way in any of the three years that he was with his disciples. He could have had it in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or wherever they were going in Galilee. But he decides that it would be in this context, in the shadows of this rock, that he would say, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And when Peter answers correctly, and he says, you are the the son of the living God, you are the Christ. His answer to him is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then he says this. You remember the words that he says right after this? Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We don't know we, we don't have, it doesn't tell us in the scriptures, and just, just take this as my opinion. But after having stood there, there was a moment where we're standing there right where I took this picture, and we open to Matthew 16, and we read this passage, and man, all the feels, <laughs> all the chills, as you realize that more than likely what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, Peter, you see that rock? You see the worship that's going on there? I'm building something new. And I'm going to build it on you. Your name means rock. And he doesn't say this, but the implication is there's this day coming called Pentecost, and you're going to lead the church in Jerusalem. And I'm going to establish a church that is so powerful, that is so rock solid on you, Peter, and the people people of God that I'm going to put around you, that is so rock solid that even, and don't you know that he pointed, even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Jesus was so cool. He used the archaeology around him to drive home who he was and who he is and what his church is to be. Something that I'm going to start doing that I have begun doing after studying this passage in preparation for the sermon that I'm going to challenge you to do is is I'm starting each morning and I'm just saying a simple prayer and I'm just saying this. Every morning I I wanted to make the right declaration. I'm going to say with Peter, you are the son of the living God. You're the Christ. In you is my hope. Start every day that way. Because the nature of my heart is to start each day with all kinds of false hopes. All kinds of things that I'm looking to that day that if that were to happen or if this were to happen, then this is going to be a good day instead of my foundation, my rock, being on Jesus. Right? I mean, some days it's something as simple and, and, and silly as, man, if I can get through all the emails in my inbox, that's my hope today. But to start each day, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ, and you is my hope. That's where I'm starting my day, with the right declaration. Now, Peter started off great. Let's keep reading. 
It changes quickly. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Blessed are you, Barjona. Get behind me, Satan. It shifted pretty quick. Drastic change in how Peter goes from making a right declaration. Secondly, the second observation I want you to make that we want to make together is that he had a very wrong understanding of who Jesus is. He had a right declaration. He kind of he knew that this was the long-awaited Messiah, Messiah who was come to rescue them, but he had a wrong understanding of how that rescue was going to take place. You see, I want to remind you, some of you have heard this before, some of you have not, but uh, for those that have, I want to remind you that the reason that the disciples and Peter misunderstood Jesus is because they, they didn't understand what he was really there for, why he came. So what they're expecting is they're expecting Messiah that was, that was going to show up and going to deliver them militarily, politically, from the, oppress, uh, the oppression of the Romans. Because you've got to consider and you've you got to think, man, don't, don't be too hard on them because you would have thought the same thing because you are a part of a people group, the Israelites, the people of God who have not had their own sovereign kingdom, their own land, their own government, their own king, anything like that in over half a millennia. For over 500 years, they've been under the rule and the reign of someone else's king. Started with Assyria, and then it was Babylon, and then it was Persia, and then it was Rome. And except for one little military coup in there, in the 100 BCs, I don't even know that, 100s BC, there you go, they didn't, have any, they didn't have their own land or king or any of their own rule. And so they were waiting for that. And they thought that the, they misunderstood the Old Testament prophecies to think that when the Messiah came, that he was going to deliver them, he was going to rescue them from the oppression of the Romans and give them back what was rightfully theirs. So you can imagine that when Jesus, after having this, made this right declaration from Peter that you are the Christ, you are the one that we've long waited on to deliver us and rescue us, that when Jesus says, oh yeah, so here's the thing, guys, now that you understand that I am the Christ, so here's what's going to happen, I'm, I'm going to die be crucified. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. You, you can imagine how their minds would be blown. No, 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 you just can't be. You, you're the Christ, but you're going to die? Peter pulls him to the side, being the great leader that he is, and he says, no, 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 no you, you can't do this. And Jesus knows what he's there for, and he knows Peter doesn't understand. And He says, get behind me, Satan. They don't understand Jesus because, here, don't miss this. Listen to this. They wanted Jesus to do something for them more than they wanted the authentic Jesus. They wanted Jesus to do something for them more than they wanted the authentic Jesus. Let me explain it to you this way. Rachel and I just celebrated our 15-year anniversary. The first several years of our marriage... Uh, we fought the hard battle of infertility. And it was hard. It was no fun. But it led us, by God's grace, to this place called Ukraine. And to this smaller town west of Kiev called Zhatomer, Ukraine. 
and to this little orphanage there and to this little boy that would become our son. We were there for about a month in the year of 2005. First couple of weeks was spent mostly just doing all the paperwork and all the things with the legal system. But the last two weeks we were there, we got to... We got to visit Samuel every day in the orphanage. And I was so th- grateful for that time looking back because it gave uh, an extended amount of time for us to be able to, to get to know him and for him to get to us, know us so that when that day came for us to take him, he wouldn't be as, as terrified. And so every day for a couple hours, two to three hours, we'd get to go and spend some time with him. And most of those days, they let us take him into their little playroom that they had in the orphanage. Now, most of Samuel's caretakers were shorter women. So tall Jeff shows up. There was a shelf in the playroom that had toys on the top shelf that he never got to play with. So what he would do almost every day is he would come and he would take my hand. And when he would take my hand, my heart would beat a little harder. My son has grabbed my hand. And he would take me across the playroom and he'd lead me to the big shelf. And he'd go, sto, sto, sto which is Russian for that, 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 that. And being his daddy, he doesn't know that yet, I would most of the time gladly, or I guess probably all the time, gladly grab it and say, here you go, buddy. But there was a part of my heart that dreamed. I actually remember one day this this epiphany hit me, this analogy hit me. I'm reaching for the toy and I'm giving it to him and I'm praying and longing for the day that he will come and grab my hand. And instead of leading me across to the tall shelf to say that, he will just simply grab my hand and say, you, 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 I want you, daddy. See, See, this is us in the Christian life. We Many of us, we know Jesus, and we make right declarations of Jesus, and we say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and that's right, but then we walk to Jesus, and we grab his hand, and we look at him, and we say, hey there, hey, thanks for being here, come over here, and we lead him to the shelves in our life, and we get to the shelves, and we say, that, 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 and Jesus is just merely a means to an end of what we really want. And he longs for the day that we will come to him and we will grab his hand and we won't see him as a means to an end, but we will see him as the end and we will point to him and we will say, you, 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 I want you. You see, Peter here doesn't understand because he's only seeing Jesus as a means to an end. He's only seeing Jesus as the one who can deliver them from the Romans and Jesus is saying, that's not why I came. Now, there is a day coming. There is a day coming where Jesus will come and he will be the warrior on the horse and he will make all things new and he will be the king forever and ever and we will reign with him in the new heavens and new earth and all sad things will be untrue and everything will be made new and that will be amazing but that's not why Jesus came the first time. Jesus came the first time because he he knew that our biggest problem was not the Romans, that our biggest problem was ourselves. Our own hearts, our own sin. And that way more than we needed rescuing from some oppressive kingdom, we needed rescuing from our sin. We needed reconciliation, redemption with the Father, right relationship with the God of the universe. And it's as if Jesus is saying in the words that are so harsh and so uh, just pointing to say, get behind me, Satan. What he's saying is that you don't understand, just wait, trust me. I'm taking you somewhere that if you will 
wait, it's going to be more than you could ever imagine. Better than anything you could ever imagine. One last illustration on this point, and then I'll move on. My wife may correct me on this, but my recollection serves me that, that none of our kids, when they were babies, liked our car seats. None of them. You people who, who talk about putting your kids in car seats and they fall right asleep, yeah, I, don't, I really don't like you. <laughs> that is not our experience at all. We would put our babies in the car seat and they were just thrashing and just, what are you doing? And you know in their little minds, they're just going, why are you strapping me in? This is horrible. This is terrible. This stinks. What are you? And they have no concept of what's happening in the bigger picture other than you're strapping me into this really uncomfortable seat and I don't like you. There was one time I can remember in particular, I was strapping one of my daughters when she was a baby into the car seat. And I can remember thinking very vividly, if I could just make her understand that in the moment, as much as she hates this, I'm taking you to the park. <laughs> like if you could just get like where I'm taking you, you're going to really love. Just chill out. Okay, please. She can't get that. This is, this is God putting Peter in the car seat. I know you don't get it, Peter, and I know this doesn't make sense to you, but just trust me. What I'm doing and giving my life for you and raising on the third day is better than anything you could ever get. And I know you don't get it now, and I know it's uncomfortable, but trust me. Man, how much does he do that with us in our lives? How much does he say to us and lead us into situations and circumstances where we just say, I don't get you. I don't understand you. There's so much that Jesus will do and has done in our lives that we will rightfully say, I don't understand you. But you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And even though I don't always understand you, I know I can trust you. And, and please let me say this. I don't want that to come across as some trite little nice analogy that a pastor can stand on stage and not get the weight of what some of you are walking through and have walked through. Some of you walk through and are walking through incredibly deep hurt and pain. And I don't want to tritefully say, hey, just get in the car seat, it's going to get better. Because on, in this earth, on this, on this side of heaven, we don't know we have no promise it's going to get better, but we do know that there is a day coming where all things will be made new, and it'll come through the benevolent, good, loving hands and work of our Jesus when he will reign rightfully forever and ever. We don't always understand, just like Peter, but we can trust him. Lastly, and much more briefly, we see that not only is there a right declaration, not only is there a wrong understanding, but there's a hard calling, a really hard calling. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? A Christian life is a continual call to die to self and find your life in Jesus. This is, 
This is the calling of the Christian life that they would have not understood either. They, they would have said, what is Jesus talking about? Take up your cross. Like Christ, Christ at this point had not gone to the cross yet, so they're confused by that. Take up the Roman form of capital punishment. Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. And Jesus is simply saying that following me in this broken, fallen world is going to be hard because you are completely uh, incapable sometimes of resisting sin as though it seems. You feel that way. Feel sometimes I can't resist my selfish ambitions and my selfish nature, and I can't resist this sin and this sin and this temptation and how I want to think here and this, and I don't know how to die to all that, and it feels like it's overwhelming oftentimes, and God's calling us to die. And if you're like me, you say, how? How am I supposed to take up my cross? For me, oftentimes, taking up my cross and dying to self for the sake of finding life in Jesus just feels begrudgingly difficult. It can feel like duty. It can feel like I'm gritting my teeth and just saying, okay, I see what your word says, but I, and I don't really want to do it because all these other things just seem so much more tangible to me than you do, Jesus. And, and I really feel like I can grab hold here and here and have hope here and here. And, and I, you just don't feel tangible sometimes. I don't know how to die, and, but I guess I'll do it anyway. And so just, oh, fine. I'm dying to self. I want to give you an, a final example, a story of what I think it could look like, and certainly in my own life, of when dying becomes much easier. It's the story of Homer's Odyssey, part of a story out of Homer's Odyssey. Many of you have heard of that. Some of you have read it. Ancient writing, Greek mythology. One of the more famous stories out of it is the story of Ulysses, or as oftentimes referred to as Odysseus. Odysseus is gone, and he's won this great battle with his men, and now he's on the trek home. He's trying to get back to his wife and his children, and it's this long journey on the ship that he's guiding, and they've got to go through the narrows to get to the other big part of the sea to get to where they're going to go home. And the narrows is the only way to go, and they know, he's been told, that when you're going through these narrows, there's, there's these things called sirens there that are going to beckon you in ways that you've never been beckoned. They're going to draw you in. They're going to, they're going to lull you to themselves. And they're going to do that through the, their appearance and the way that they look, but they're going to do it primarily and mostly by the song that they sing. They're going to sing a song that is so riveting, so captivating that you're going to naturally drive your ship because it's so sweet, and you're going to drive it straight to the sirens. And what you don't know, Odysseus, is that when you drive your ship in that direction, you're going to hit rocks that you can't see, and your, your, your ship is going to sink. And then they're going to devour you and your men. It's not what it seems. They are not what they seem. There's another story that's not quite as well known. It's about a, another man named Jason. And he, too, was making a trek through the Narrows. I want to tell you about how they both went about it. So back to Odysseus. Odysseus determines that what he's going to do to go through the narrows is that he's going to have all his men fill their ears, stuff their ears with beeswax to where they can't hear the song. And then he wants to hear the song. He tells his men, I want to hear what this beautiful melody is that is so 
captivating and enthralling. And I want to hear it, and, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to shackle me to the mast, the, the, the big mast in the middle of the ship. I want you to shackle me to it and then tie me up around it. And no matter how much you see me thrashing and kicking and fighting and begging for you to untie me and unshackle me so that I can go and be where the sirens are, no matter how much you see me doing that, don't untie me. Don't let me go. And so that's his men obey him. And they go through the narrows and the song, they sing the song and the men don't hear it. Odysseus does and he fights like crazy to get free because he wants it so bad. But he's tied to the mast and his men didn't let him go. This is the Christian life for many of us. We tie ourselves to the mast of obedience and we say, I'm going to obey, I'm going to obey, I'm going to obey. And we stuff beeswax in our ears and we say, I don't want to hear the songs of the world. I don't want to hear the temptation. And it's not because we have this great vision of Jesus. But it's just simply because we say, God told me to die, so I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. To what beckons me in this world. And the sin all around me. Listen to how Jason did it. Jason, on the same path, going through the same narrows, facing the same sirens in their songs, has a different plan. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to ask my men to stuff their ears full of wax. I'm not going to tie myself to the mast. I'm going to ask the greatest musician in all the land who plays the most sublime song that we've ever heard to come on board with us. And so he invites the musician Orpheus to come and to take the trek with them. And when they get to the place of the entrance into the narrows, and when he knows that the song of the sirens is about to begin, he turns to Orpheus and and he says, Orpheus, play your song. And as Orpheus begins to play, the men are enthralled with the music that is there on the ship with them, the song of Orpheus. And they begin to tune their ears to this sweeter and better song, to where they don't even hear the sound of the sirens because they are so captivated and enthralled and mesmerized by a better song. This is how God intends us to die to ourselves and find our life in Jesus, to tune our ears to the song of the gospel, to the song of Jesus, the sweeter, the more sublime, the better song that captivates our hearts in a way that, that nothing that the sirens of this world could ever captivate us by because the song is so good and so sweet. And so we begin to sing this song with Jesus of redemption and of reconciliation and of transformation and forgiveness and mercy and grace and love that is never ending and better and bigger than we could ever imagine, this never ending, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. And we we think on that and we sing on that and we so get in tune with the song of Jesus that we say, are there any other songs? This one is so good. It's what my heart was made for. And when I'm with this Jesus, this authentic Jesus, this Jesus that I don't always understand but who is so good and whose song of the gospel is so sweet, I don't always understand him but I will follow him. And I will love him. What song are you listening to? There's so many songs out there. The song of pornography. The song of gossip. The song of the American dream and success and money and having everything that you want in this world. There's all kinds of songs out there. And sometimes they feel irresistible. They feel like I can 
I can't not steer the ship in that direction. They are so beckoning me. Friend, what I would tell you is tune your ears to the song of the gospel and those songs will begin to diminish because his song is so much better, so much sweeter, so good. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna sing the song of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Lord, we started off by praying that we believe that your word is living and active. And we trust that and believe this morning that it has certainly done its work in our hearts. And we pray that you would give us hearts that are continually, day in and day out, tuning ourselves to the gospel, to the song of Jesus. Lord, would you forgive us when we are so easily swayed in this direction and that direction by songs that are they're nothing like the song of Jesus. Father, we are a people who are quick, if we're Christians, we're quick to make a right declaration about you, but we can so quickly begin to misunderstand some of the things that you're doing in our life and to not accept the hard calling of following you in this world. So Lord, would you do a great work in our hearts and would you be praised even now as we sing this song the song of Jesus, would you help us continue to sing it throughout the day and week until we're here again next week? We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.